Well, good morning, Life Point. So good to be with you all this morning. We get to gather together and we get to worship the Lord. Friends, that is something to be excited about. Uh, real quick, if you're new, joining us today, whether you are here in the auditorium, whether you're watching online, uh, whenever you are watching this video, uh, I'm glad that you are. My name is Pastor Adam. I would love to get to say hi. I would love to get to meet you. But if you are new, highly, highly encourage you to text the word welcome to the number on the screen, 406-219-0314. Uh, and you follow the prompts, and this is a, this is a tool to build relationships. Uh, so if you haven't yet, highly, highly encourage you to text the word welcome to that number. And speaking of building relationships, life groups are right around the corner. Uh, our spring season of life groups are going to be launching the week of March 10th. Uh, and if you don't know what a life group is, uh, let me give you a little quick rundown. Uh, life group is a home small group. They meet for nine weeks. And a life group intends to do three things, really. Number one is build relationships. Uh, you know, that's something that we as Christ followers should be doing. We build a relationship with God and we build a relationship with one another. Uh, this is a great avenue where, where life groups get to come in, that you get to build deeper relationships, deeper than just like a Sunday morning conversation, deeper than just, you know, getting lunch with someone, but you get to know people on a deeper level. Uh, second thing that a life group intends to do is to apply scripture. So a life group takes the sermon that was preached on Sunday morning and they explore it. They dissect it. They dive deeper into it. They ask questions about it. Uh, and the emphasis isn't just on head knowledge of something. It's actually on application of it. It's how do we go from hearing a sermon preached on Sunday morning to living it out? Uh, because, friends, we want to be doers of the word, not just hearers of it. And this is what a life group explores, is how do we apply this to our life? Uh, and lastly, a, a life group intends to pray and care for one another. Uh, prayer is powerful. And a life group prays for one another. They care for one another. Uh, it's a place to know others and a place to be known. Uh, so if you are interested in signing up for a life group, you can go to LifePoint, or, yeah, lifepointmt.org slash lifegroups. Uh, you can see a bunch of different groups already up there, uh, different leaders, different places, different times, different days. You can find a group that meets your schedule. And if you don't right away, uh, there will be more groups added this next week. Uh, but you can start signing up for that. And let me tell you, if you're not involved in a life group, you're missing out. You're missing out a lot. Uh, so I highly encourage you to go check out that and get signed up for a life group. Uh, and lastly, we have a welcome party on February 27th, right here. So if you haven't been to a welcome party, this is a great opportunity to get to know more about LifePoint. Uh, you get to meet the staff. You, you get to meet some of the, pa you meet the pastors, some of the staff. You get to hear about LifePoint. You get to hear our philosophy of ministry, what we view as important, uh, what we try to focus on here at LifePoint. We get to have dinner, and you get to ask a bunch of questions. Uh, if you want to sign up for this welcome party, you can go to lifepointmt.org slash events. And if you haven't been to a welcome party, highly, highly, highly encourage you to sign up and come to that welcome party. I know I've been talking a lot about announcements, but if you got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Uh, today we get to continue our series exploring the book of Acts. Uh, and while you're turning there, I just want to give you a quick little recap of what is happening right now in the book of Acts. Uh, so after Jesus' death and his resurrection, we see, these, we see this in, in the Gospels, and it's recapped at the beginning of the book of Acts. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And it says he gave them many convincing proofs. Uh, and, and Jesus commanded his disciples 
to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. We covered this last week. Why? Because God's power is greater than your power. And you're going to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit because the mission is following. This mission to be a witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Jesus gives his disciples this command, and then he's taken into heaven. And the disciples were kind of standing there, looking up at the sky, like in shock. And it says two men showed up. Presumably they're angels, just by the way they speak and, and act. And they, in essence, asked the question, like, why are you looking in the sky? Like, what are you waiting for? Jesus is going to return the same way that you've seen him go. Right now, it's time to get to work. It's time to do what God had told you to do. So this is where we're picking up today in the book of Acts. Uh, but something that we are already going to see from the very, very early pages of the book of Acts, and like really the first week of the church's existence, is their unity. And really the rest of Acts chapter 1, are, we're going we're to see some essentials to building unity. And the bottom line this morning is something that we're going to see unfold in the life of the early church, and something that we should be cognizant of as the church today is this bottom line, that a church united pursues God's purpose. So I hope by now you are in Acts chapter 1. We're be starting at verse 12. And this is what it says. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city, and when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Will you join me as we open up this morning in prayer? Father, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for your goodness, your love, your grace, your mercy that we get to rejoice in. And Lord, I pray today as we continue exploring the book of Acts, Lord, I pray you give us the eyes to see and the understanding of the importance of unity. Lord, I pray that we as the church today can come together and be united to pursue what you have called us to pursue. And Lord, we're grateful for your word. I pray today as we open up your word and you allow me to speak, as you give me breath to speak, I pray that you give me the words to speak. And Lord, do not let me say anything that you do not want me to say. Lord, we pray that your presence shapes our life, it changes our life. Lord, I pray that our lives bring you glory and honor. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So coming into this, Something that we see, you know, we, one, we're going we're gonna to see the, the unity of this early church. But one of the first things that they do in, 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 in verse 12 is that they were obedient. They were obedient to what God has called them to do. You know, these disciples, they, they were probably eager to go out and spread the news of what has just happened. They were probably eager to go and tell people about the greatest event that has ever happened in humanity. But they stayed where they were told to stay. It says they went back to Jerusalem, which was a Sabbath day walk. So real quick, what is a Sabbath day walk? Uh, a Sabbath day walk is about two-thirds of a mile. Why? Because that's all the Mishnah would allow. 
Um, we, we've covered this in previous series, but uh, the Jewish people, they, they kind of got obsessed with the Sabbath. Uh, and, you know, because God commands, keep the Sabbath holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. So the Jewish people, a lot of the times, they would work at not working on the Sabbath. And they came up with all of these, you know, rules and regulations of what you could and could not do during the Sabbath. And throughout Jesus's earthly ministry, we see it. He just pokes at this, like, all the time. Um, and, you know, if you walk too much, that could be considered work. So a Sabbath day walk was about two-thirds of a mile. Uh, but they returned to Jerusalem, that they were obedient to what the Lord had said, despite what they probably wanted to do. Like, these disciples, they know that everything has just changed. And they are to be witnesses of it. They know that, that history has just changed. That the whole world has just changed and they are to go and share this message. But Jesus told them to wait. And that's exactly what they did. You notice here that, that they, they didn't follow their own emotions. They didn't, they didn't follow their, their own opinions. They did what the Lord told them to do. That they returned to Jerusalem. And in, in verse 13, it says when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they were obedient to the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, to the place where they were staying. And it records that the 11 apostles were in attendance. Remember, one, one apostle fell off. Uh, that's Judas. We're going to talk about him in a minute. Uh, but they said they, they, they came together. In verse 14, it says they all joined together constantly in prayer. But they were all together. Uh, Luke, who's the author of this, he uses a Greek word called homothumadon. And this means like one in mind, that they were united, that they were together. They were with like one accord. They were like completely united. And I know what you might be thinking. You might be like, these are the same disciples that we're hearing about in the Gospels. They were united. Yeah. And I know that's pretty, pretty incredible amongst Jesus's, Jesus's disciples and his apostles. Like, like real quick, just let's take a look at who's in attendance here. We have James and John. They wanted to call fire down onto men. We have uh, Thomas, who didn't believe Jesus rose again from the dead until he put his finger in his hand. Uh, we have Philip. Philip, who was with Jesus for so long, yet still didn't really know who he was. Uh, Peter uh, denied Jesus three times. Denied Jesus to a little girl. We have Matthew, who's a tax collector, or was a tax collector. Now, real quick, tax collectors, they would take money from the Jewish people and give it to the Roman oppressors. Like, everybody hated tax collectors. But also here in attendance, it says we, we have Simon the Zealot. And a lot of times we just read that and kind of like brush over that. But a zealot uh, was uh, a member of a Jewish sect who were really, the zealots were really uncompromising in their beliefs. Uh, the, the, the zealots, they waged war against the Romans. They would use hit-and-run tactics, public assassinations, and they wanted the Jewish people to follow what they were doing, and they wanted to expel Rome and everyone who supported them by force. 
They wanted to, in essence, like kill all the Romans and all their friends. And you have a tax collector and a zealot in the same room. They were one. Like literally, these, these guys would be on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Yet they were one. They were united. It says that they were one in mind, together. They had this unity in, in Christ. They had this unity together because they believed that the Holy Spirit was going to come. That they joined together in, in prayer. And they had absolutely no doubt that the Holy Spirit would come. So they stood together. They were united. They stood together. And Christian, for you today, like, don't stand alone. Like, don't stand alone. Like, I heard this great story the other day. There was a couple friends, or a few friends, they were at a barbecue. And there was one friend there who, he was involved in the church, and he was actively involved in the life of the church, but then, more recently, he just kind of dropped off. And one of the other friends came to him and asked him, you know, like, hey, man, where have you been? Like, I haven't seen you around, I haven't seen you at church. And the man replied, I don't need church. My faith is private. I don't need the rituals of religion. I can worship God by myself. And the other friend just nodded and walked over to the barbecue. And there they were grilling up hamburgers. And underneath the hamburgers, there was, you know, a heap of coals. And that one friend, he took the tongs and took one of the coals off of that heap and set it off to the side. And about 10 minutes later, he grabs that one friend. And he's like, come with me. And he brings him over to the barbecue, and he's like, what do you see? And the guy was like, hamburgers cooking. And he's like, no, below that. Well, coals. And he points to that one coal that was taken off the heap. And he says, 10 minutes ago, that coal was white hot. And now it's cold. Once it was removed from, from the rest of the coals, it started losing its heat and it lost its capacity to be productive in the purpose of what it was made for. Christian, we can't stand alone. Like we need each other. We need community. We need this fellowship of believers. It provides strength. It, it provides unity. It reminds me of something Jesus said. You know, Jesus, he was praying for his disciples. And, and this was the day before he would die. And when you think about this, like as we go through the gospels, Jesus knows what's going to, going to happen. Jesus knows that tomorrow he is going to die. That tonight is his last night on earth. So it's really important because Jesus knows what is going to happen. And it's really important, you know, taking a look at what Jesus does before he dies is, is very, very, very fascinating. But Jesus here, he, he's praying for his disciples. And look what he says in John chapter 17, verse 19. That's what he says. He says, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus here, he's praying for his disciples, but not just his disciples. He's praying for his disciples' disciples or anyone who will believe in him through their message. So us, us today. And in this moment, Jesus is praying for us as the church today. 
And his prayer is that they are one so that. That they are one so that the world may believe. You know, I understand the benefits of unity. But like Jesus is saying, like if we in here as the church today, like man, if we can figure our stuff out, if we can knock down some silos we've erected, if we can be united as a church, it's going to have a really big impact outside. And like this unity, it's a foundation to the purpose of what Christ has called us to do. And we covered that last week. This mission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. This was something that Jesus was praying for here in the Gospel of John. Was their unity. You see, from, from the very first chapter of the book of Acts, we see this early church. One. It says they were one in mind. They devoted themselves to prayer. They stood together in unity. And it says that, that the 11 disciples were there, but we also see that women were there as well. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Interestingly enough, that's the last time you'll hear about Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Scripture. But it also says his brothers were there. As the oneness of this church. You might be thinking, like, wait, Jesus' brothers. Because if you recall, like, in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers, they were skeptics. They, they didn't believe Jesus' claims. But after Jesus' resurrection, they believed. I mean, James, one of Jesus' brothers, he, he would go on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He would be one of these, you know, founding, founding members of this early church. He would go on to write the book of James. He was in attendance. You know, so in this room, who's this church coming together, there were people from all different walks of life, some who have followed Jesus from the beginning, others who are brand new Christians, some who are zealots, others who are tax collectors. I mean, people from all different walks of life, yet they were one. You know, it sounds a lot like the church today, people from all different backgrounds, people from all different walks of life, coming together united in Christ. You see, in this, this unity that, that Jesus prayed for and is displayed in the life of the early church it is really this, this stepping stone of, of what they're going to push off into in the next coming chapters of the book of Acts. But before we get there, look what happens next. In verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there fell headlong and his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. So Peter here, he, he takes this natural role of leadership as Peter often does. 
And he says, it says that there are 120 gathered. So Peter stands before these 120. Now, that's not saying that's all the believers currently. That's just who, was, who were there. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul, he, he says that Jesus, after his resurrection, he appeared to over 500. But right here in this, in this room, there were 120 believers in unity, praying, waiting, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and here's the thing. We know that the Holy Spirit's coming at the beginning of the next chapter. Like, they, they don't. But they're in this waiting. Like, when would the Holy Spirit come? Will, will, will it be three days? Jesus was dead for three days. Will, will, will it be, you know, seven days? That's super symbolic. Like, when is this Holy Spirit going to come? And they didn't know. But one of the apostles, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, he ended up killing himself. And a quick side note, because I've had many conversations about this, how did Judas kill himself? Um, because some people think that there's like a discrepancy here. Uh, because in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Judas hung himself. Here, here in Acts, it says that he fell headlong and his intestines ruptured. Um, so some people think there's like a discrepancy here, but the thing is, these are just different details of the same event. Uh, the suggestion is that Judas hung himself in a violent manner, and as a result of that hanging, his internal organs ruptured. Uh, so different details, same event. And also the Apostle Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, is in attendance with when, when Peter's saying this. So different details, same event. But it's a reminder of what has happened. Judas is dead. And have you ever asked the question, like, why did Jesus pick Judas? I mean, you think about this, like, Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. Why would you pick him? He sounds like a pretty bad choice for an apostle, doesn't he? But Peter here, he stands up and he's addressing these believers, reassuring them that, that Judas didn't stop Jesus' plan, that he fulfilled it. That's what he says. He says the scripture must be fulfilled. And this was part of his plan. And then he quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. But something really interesting here is even in this time of waiting, they were still rooted in God's word. You know, in this time of uncertainty, what, what, what do we do? We know we've got to stay in Jerusalem, but they were still rooted in God's word. And Christian today, rely on God's word. Be rooted in God's word. Because, like Christian, like you don't, you don't want to wait for hardship to come in life and then come to God's word as like a reactionary type thing. Like as a Christ follower, like we should already be rooted in it, friend. Don't neglect spending time in God's word. Stay rooted in it. Rely on it. Seek the scriptures. I mean, this is exactly what the early church was doing. That they came together. They focused their attention on prayer, on obedience to what the Lord has said, to the teaching of scripture. You know, after Jesus' death and his resurrection, he, uh, uh, there was two on, on the way to a, a place called Emmaus. They're on this road. And they were kind of confused. You know, confused about what had just happened. And Jesus appears to them and starts walking with them. And they didn't recognize it was Jesus. And Jesus asked them, you know, like, what, what are you guys talking about? And they were like, you must be the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what has just happened. 
Like, we just saw, we thought he was the guy. He was powerful and mighty, in, he was mighty in, in words and in deeds, and he just got crucified. And it says that Jesus taught them, beginning with Moses, and he went through the whole Old Testament, showing them that what they had just witnessed in Jerusalem had to happen. That it was prophesied. That the Old Testament prophecies had to be fulfilled. And, and we see at the beginning of Acts that Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven. Now, if I had to guess, these disciples were probably searching the scriptures in regards to Judas. Why did he pick Judas? And Peter came across one of David's prophetic writings about the, the one who would betray the Messiah and have to be replaced. You know, there's great symbolism between the Old Testament and the New. You know, in the Old Testament, we have 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, there are 12 apostles that Jesus chose. So they knew that, that there had to be 12. And these disciples knew that they had to replace Judas. That they were reliant on God's word and obedience to the Lord. They knew that they needed to replace an apostle. Not because it was just something that they wanted to do, but they believed that it was what the Lord wanted them to do. So, so look what happens in verse 21. It says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness, of, or witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. They casted lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So remember, at this point, the, the Holy Spirit has not come onto these, these apostles yet. But they still knew what needed to happen because they, they already know that God has spoken through his word. So we have this criteria of what they were looking for in this next apostle. It's not rooted in, in scripture, but it's like common sense is what they were you know, thinking of. That they needed to have someone who was with Jesus from the beginning at his baptism, all the way through his earthly ministry, someone who was a witness of his resurrection, and lastly, chosen by Christ. And this was where the casting lots came in. Uh, now, what is casting lots? We're not like too certain of what it is. It's kind of like, it'd be like flipping a coin or rolling dice. Um, and some people criticize the, the apostles for going to this to choose their replacement apostle. Uh, but what a lot of people forget is casting lots was something that was used a lot in the Old Testament. It was used often in the Old Testament to seek God's will, to determine God's will. I mean, Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. You know, casting lots is mentioned over 70 times in the Bible. And most of the time, it was used to seek God's direction. Now, today, should you flip a coin to make a decision? No. Should you roll dice? No. 
Why? Uh, because you as a Christian today, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have the complete word of God guiding your decision making. If you look at what these disciples had, what did they have? Well, they had the new, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They, they had the Old Testament and time spent with Jesus. So, so what happened was they saw this in the Old Testament, so they casted lots for this next apostle. And they had this criteria, someone who was at Jesus' baptism, witnessed his resurrection, and then chosen by Christ. Now, real quick, as we're coming into the book of Acts, you are going to start seeing this word apostle a lot more. Um, often, oftentimes, I mean, we see it, we see it uh, a little bit in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts, you're going to start seeing it a lot more. Uh, and a lot of times when we say, you know, the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, you know, we, it's very easy. We just interchange those words, but they do have very different meanings. So, so the word for disciple in, in the Greek is mathetes, and it means like learner or student, a student of Christ, one who follows Christ. So, so disciple is often used as a blanket term for those who follow Christ. And that's something we're going to see in, in, in the book of Acts. And apostle, now all the apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. The word apostle in the Greek is apostolos. And uh, an apostle at this time is like a, a, an ambassador. An ambassador who would be commissioned by a ruler or a king and given authority to speak in the king's name with the king's power. So in the ancient world, for an example, a king would commission an apostle as his emissary and send him out. And his word was the word of the king. It carried with it the same weight and authority as if the king spoke it. So as we're exploring the book of Acts, uh, you know, we're going to see the disciple used in like a broader term for students of Christ and, uh, you know, for the Christians. And the word apostle is generally in reference to the 12 plus Paul and some others who are functioning in the role of, of apostle. Um, just that's a quick little side note. And you might have encountered this before. People who claim to be apostles today. Um, I want to be clear, there, there are no apostles today, uh, simply because no one can meet the requirement of the New Testament for an apostle. Uh, we see, you know, the, the requirements of what these apostles were looking for in the next replacement apostle, someone who witnessed Jesus' baptism, witnessed his resurrection, and chosen by Christ. And I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, like, what about Paul? Uh, you know, because uh, Paul, he wasn't around since the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't an eyewitness of his resurrection. Yet he did see the glorified Christ on his way to Damascus. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 9. Super excited to get there. Uh, but he was commissioned by Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So he missed the first and second criteria, but landed the third. Yet Paul is called an apostle three times in the book of Acts. Now, even though Paul didn't meet the first two criteria, something we will see is that he's instructed to go to Jerusalem to be validated by the other apostles whose credentials are beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they fit all of those criteria. So he was validated in that manner. Um, now, while there are no apostles today who have that apostolic authority, there are still disciples. 
I mean, there are still teachers. There are still evangelists. There are still preachers. There are still deacons. There are elders, pastors. A whole lot more in the body of Christ. So the lot lands on Matthias. And Matthias is added to the 12 apostles. And from then on, we don't hear about him. He never comes up again. And this has led some to believe that these disciples made a mistake here. Or these apostles made a mistake. That the real apostle, the 12th apostle, should have been Paul. You know, because they're like, if you look at it, all of the other apostles were hand-selected by Christ. Paul was hand-selected by Christ. And then they limited Christ where it's, they gave him two options, Matthias and Justice. But just because we don't hear about Matthias doesn't mean he wasn't doing anything. We'll see him reference, you know, when Peter stands up at Pentecost, it says he stood up with the 11 apostles. Like, Matthias was there. And, and according to Greek history, uh, Matthias, he preached in Judea. Then he went up north and preached in, to what is modern-day Georgia. Eventually, he was crucified for his proclamation of the gospel. So just because we don't hear more about Matthias doesn't mean he wasn't doing anything. And this brings us to the end of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. You know, we're still left in this waiting. You know, we're still, still left waiting for the, for the Holy Spirit to come and empower them for the mission that lies ahead. But even in this waiting, we still see their unity. We still see their oneness. And as we're closing, I want to invite the, the worship team back up here. You know, in, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, we, we get to see this early church and what they did. That they were obedient to what the Lord commanded. They were one in mind. That they searched the scriptures. They, they came together. They were praying together. They were united. And coming back to this bottom line, a church united pursues God's purpose. We're going to see this unfold as we continue on in the book of Acts. That this early church is going to push forward into all the known world with what God has called them to do. A church united. Will you join me as we close in prayer? Well, Father, we're grateful for today. We're grateful that your church continues. And Lord, I pray that you help us be united. That we have this common purpose that we're pursuing. That we come together as a church, united. Lord, I pray you give us the realization of the importance of unity. And Lord, let us pursue it as we pursue what you have called us to do. Lord, we are grateful for what you have done. We are grateful for what you will do today. Lord, we're grateful for what you'll do tomorrow. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.